0: All right. Good morning. Welcome, everybody, to CSIS. Uh, My name is Sarah Ladislaw. I am Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program here. I want to welcome all of you and thank you for coming to the 2019 BP Energy Outlook presentation. Um, We're always thrilled to host Spencer Dale and the BP team for. what has come to be be one of the sort of standard bearers for outlooks uh, in the energy world, Um, not because it's right, uh, as Adam Siminski used to say when he was here, uh, you know, being right is sort of this preoccupation of modelers that that gets in the way, Um, but because it helps us think creatively uh, about a, a really uncertain future in the energy market. Uh, and uh, that, that policymakers and companies and lots of people have to make decisions around. Um, I am your safety officer as well as your host today, so just want to let you know, we don't plan on any kind of incident or accident today, but we do take your safety very seriously. Um, please, you're on the first floor, so you're lucky you've got uh, first access to the door right out there to your right uh, and we gather uh, across the way in the green space uh, and we will give you direction about what to do depending on uh, what kind of incident it would be, but we don't plan on anything. There's no fire drills planned for today. Um, We are going to allow Spencer to go through the full uh, presentation, which I think is a real important thing to do because it really fits together um, as a coherent package. I think this year's outlook, I'm always, I feel like I'm saying this a lot, but this year's outlook is probably the, the most comprehensive and the best uh, that, that I've seen so far, particularly uh, because of the way in which it deals with some of the uncertainties and questions that it explores. So we're going to allow Spencer to go through that. Um, many of you know uh, Spencer Dale, chief economist of uh, BP and the lead uh, author of the bp outlook i know he's got a whole team of folks uh, and and works across the the business to put this together um, but we're really pleased to have him here he'll do his presentation and then we'll facilitate some questions i will say for those of you uh, very oversubscribed event today so if you're watching online and you'd like to ask a question Uh, you can uh, tweet at me, uh, you can do CSIS Live, or you can just send me a note and we'll try and get your questions in as well. So without further ado, I'm gonna welcome Spencer uh, to present the outlook and uh, then we'll have a discussion. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Sarah, and thank you very much uh, everybody for sparing the time to come to this US launch of this year's uh, BP um, Energy Outlook. Now, some of you at this point may be really worried. Sarah said, I'm gonna go through the whole presentation. You've got this big fat book in front of you. And you're thinking, oh my God, um, I'm, I'm losing the will to live. Trust me, it's not gonna be, I'm not gonna go through the whole presentation. I'm gonna, I'll do about 40 minutes or so. So hope, don't, don't worry, I'm not gonna promise. I promise it won't go on for, for, for too long. Uh, and if you want me to stop, just go like that and I'll just sit down and do q and A. Q&A. Um, um, thank you very much, Sarah and CSIS, for, for hosting uh, uh, us again here today. I spent two years working for the Federal Reserve in, uh, in, in Washington. So I love Washington. I also love uh, what Sarah and CSIS are doing, uh, right at the cutting edge in terms of some of these energy policy, uh, energy transition debates. So, thank you very much for, for the invitation. Um, for those who aren't familiar, we BP with the Energy Outlook. We produce the Energy Outlook every year looking ahead at the the key forces shaping global energy markets out um, for the next uh, 20 years. We produced this document to help BP's strategy. This document is exactly the same document as I share my executive team. It's exactly the same document I share with with my board. You may think it's wrong, you may think it's sugar-coated. If it is, that's just my failing. It's not because I'm telling you one thing and we believe something um, different. The point of producing that document is to, as I say, to help our, our strategy at BP. The role of that projection is not to try and predict the future, it's like Adam was, was, was saying. Any forecast will be wrong. The value of, a, of an outlook like this is to better understand the uncertainty Uh, You face? Um, What happens if um, the world, if electric cars grow very, very rapidly? What happens if the pace of growth in China slows dramatically? What happens if the world starts tightening the regulation of the use of plastics very significantly? Let's do a whole series of what if statements, a whole series of alternative scenarios, and start to explore the range of uncertainty you face. And then, as a company like BP, the rational thing to do is not to say, well, what do we think is most likely? but rather to say, let's pick a strategy, a portfolio of assets that does quite well across a whole range of outcomes. So that's why we do this document. The the sort of secondary question is, well, if you do all this work and it's so clever and useful for BP, Spencer, why do you publish it? And and I think the answer why we publish is twofold. One is it provides the rationale for our strategy. If I'm selling to shareholders, I think electric cars are gonna grow very rapidly and I'm still gonna invest in oil some of them may scratch their head and say, well, that doesn't sound a very sensible thing. So you have to show them the analysis of why you think both electric cars will grow very rapidly and you're going to carry on investing in oil. That's one reason. The second reason is because... I think the most most significant risk that any company, institution, government uh, around the world faces is the danger of of groupthink, that you sit around an office in your headquarters looking at each other, furiously agreeing with each other, one or two people won't agree but they won't have the courage to say I don't agree and then you take off in one direction completely um, missing the wood for the trees. If you publish a document like this and you go around the world saying, I think electric cars are gonna grow very rapidly and I'm still going to invest in oil. If that doesn't make sense, um, enough people love telling you why you're wrong. And as a result of which it's a good way of avoiding group things. So that's why we we do um, the outlook and why we publish it and and why during the questions and answers session, if you have heard me say something which sounds wrong, chances are it is. So please feel free to interrupt and correct me and I will go back to London more informed um, than, um, than I was when I arrived here. So a whole range of different scenarios. Um, I need to turn it on, I bet. Okay. Um, We look... No. So I'm turning it. So at some point... So whoever... Somebody can help me. Can you make it work? At this point you at one level you think it's not working that's a worry but it would have been even worse if he'd made it work immediately you made it completely completely <laughs> and it's like oh my could. you know somebody's over 40 they can't um, work a clicker um so let me carry on so um why we're doing it i'm going to when we think about um producing the energy outlook we look at that energy out the the, the energy outlook through three different windows We consider how the energy is ultimately used in sectors, so how energy is used within buildings, uh, industry, transport, so how the energy is used. We then look through the window of where in the world is that energy being produced and consumed, so the where question. And finally, we look at um, what energies and, and fuels are growing to meet Uh, uh, that uh, growing demand, so three different windows onto the same changing energy uh, landscape. The first chart I'm going to show you is from, with a keyboard, yeah, that's cool, Um, is from what we call our evolving transition scenario. And, no, can I have the keyboard up here? Uh, So here we go, so this is, uh, those three windows, how the energy is used by sector, where in the world the energy um, is used and finally which fuels are growing to meet um uh, that um, to to meet that growing um demand this scenario here this, this this energy demand is from our evolving transition scenario the way to think about the evolving transition scenario is to give us a sense of the path the global energy system is traveling along if technology government policies and social preferences continue to evolve in a speed and manner seen in in the most recent past. So how the system is evolving absent a significant shock. Now, it won't evolve in that path, there will be shocks, and that's the whole excitement about the energy outlook is to explore the different nature of those shocks. be. But this gives us a a sort of narrative to help uh, uh, anchor the the narrative. In this scenario, um, energy demand grows by about a third out to 2040 so this is the same growth in energy demand just look through those same windows when thinking about what drives that growth in energy demand some of it comes from the growth in in, in population but the far bigger driver of growth in energy demand is increasing prosperity driven by uh, economic uh, um, by increases in, in productivity In this scenario, something like two and a half billion people, a third of the world's population today, move from low to middle incomes over the next 20 years. It's that increasing prosperity, that emergence of a middle class in the developing world, particularly in Asia, which drives global economic growth over the next 20 years and also drives um, um, growth in global energy demand. The extent to which energy demand needs to increase um, 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 to to meet this growing prosperity is then offset by improvements in energy efficiency. So global GDP more than doubles over this outlook, but energy demand only increases by a third. This is a really simple chart, but it's a really good one to have in your mind. If somebody tells you a profile for, for energy demand, which is very different to that third number I told you about, it pretty much has to be driven by one, a different assumption about either increasing prosperity or, incre- or improvements in energy efficiency. They are the two things which are gonna determine how much global energy demand grows over the next 20 years. And I always find it sort of surprising, the amount of pieces of work and analysis I read about global energy demand, which just don't highlight and focus on these two uh, factors. These are the two factors um, which, which are, are the big sort of drivers of energy demand over the next 20 years. In terms of, if I then think of that window and say, well, where in the world is this happening? Where's this energy growth and energy demand coming from? All of the growth in energy demand comes from the developing world, led by China here in the dark blue, and also India um, in the light blue, together with other fast-growing Asian economies, which together account for over two-thirds of the growth in energy demand. Over um, this period, energy demand within the OECD, shown in the, in the green bars, are essentially flat. Uh, in, in this evolving transition scenario, energy demand within the US is essentially uh, completely flat over the next 20 years. In the EU, it's declining quite materially over this period of time. So, for a company like BP, when we're thinking about the future, all of our growth markets are in the developing world, not. Uh, in the developed world. The vast majority of those in the Far East in in, in Asia. That's how to think about um, uh, where that demand growth um, is coming from. In terms of that third window, in terms of which fuels are growing to meet that growth in, in energy demand, Renewable energy, showing here um, in orange, um, which uh, in BP, when we do this, we separate out hydropower because um, it's a far more mature technology and so therefore has a slower growth rate. So renewable energy here is essentially wind, solar and biofuels. Um, That's by far and away the fastest growing source of energy. It accounts for around half of the growth of primary energy over the next 20 years in this scenario, with its share rising from three or 4% today to about 15% by 2040. And just remember that 15% for renewables by 2040, and I'll come back to that um, in in a while. The other source of energy which is growing um, um, robustly is natural gas, showing here in red, which overtakes coal to be the world's second largest source of energy by the mid-2020s. And as you can see, it's converging on oil um, by, um, by 2040, or the natural gas in red, um, oil um, in, in uh, green. Na- uh, renewable energy and natural gas together account for around 85% of the growth in primary energy in this scenario. So 85% of the growth of new energy in, is either in clean or cleaner uh, energy. Oil demand continues to grow for the, for the next uh, 10 years or so uh, in this scenario before um, plateauing out. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about oil demand um, in, in a moment. The, 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 um, the, the uh, fuel which is having the sharpest decline in its share is, is, global, is coal. where, where in this scenario, global coal consumption is essentially flat. Outright falls in global coal consumption within the OECD and also China, barely matched by increasing coal consumption in India and also Southeast Asia, where the vast majority of that increasing coal consumption in those countries going into the power sector to feed very strong growth in in power um, demand. That is a very, very quick uh, summary of, um, of, the, of the highlights of this year's outlook. And to, to not give you the four hour version, only give you the sort of 40 minute version, what I thought I would do is, is sort of structure the presentation around um, five questions. So how much more energy does the world need? What do and don't we know about future oil demand? Um, what might happen? if the recent trade disputes we've seen uh, persist and and escalate? Just how quickly could renewables grow? And and finally, in terms of a transition to a lower carbon energy system, what more do we we need to do? So five questions to help structure um, our our thinking. So first of all, how much more energy does the world need? In, In BP, we tend to think about the challenge facing the global energy system in terms of the dual challenge the need for more energy and less carbon. The less carbon component of that dual challenge I think is well understood. Climate science is real. We need a very substantial fall in carbon emissions over the next 20 years if we are to avoid um, the the, very significant impacts of global warming. And as I've come on to show you, um, this analysis suggests we are not on a pathway to, to achieve that. What is perhaps less well understood is the need for more energy. As I was saying, all of that growth in energy is coming from the developing world in this evolving transition scenario. And in this year's outlook, we look at the relationship in a little bit more detail between, the, between increases in energy consumption and improvements in human development as measured here by the United Nations Human Development Index. So the way to read this chart, as increases in energy consumption shown here in the the horizontal axis increase, this tends to go hand in hand with improvements in human development uh, as measured by uh, the UN Index. With this relationship particularly pronounced for average levels of energy consumption up to around 100 gigajoules. Now, 100 gigajoules is one of those really unhelpful measures. What on earth does 100 gigajoules mean? It it means just about 16 or 17 um, barrels of oil, but that doesn't really help either. To give you a better idea, today in America, average energy consumption is about 280 gigajoules per head. In the EU, it's about half of that. And in India, it's about one-tenth of that. What is really striking about this, this chart is around 80% of the world's population live in this low energy region. So about 80% of the world's population live in the region where increases in, in energy consumption tend to go hand in hand with very significant improvements in human development. In that evolving transition scenario, that share of the world's population living in that low-energy region falls to two-thirds. So two-thirds of the world's population, even when energy demand increases by 30%, still live in that low-energy region. The world needs more energy if it's continued to grow and prosper. In the energy outlook, we do an alternative scenario and say, suppose that's not acceptable. Suppose we say we want to bring down that share of the world's population living in that region to a third by 2040, rather than two-thirds. Other things equal, that needs energy uh, not to rise by, um, by, 30, by a third out to 2040, but to rise by about 65% by 2040. The world needs more energy to grow and prosper. Now, the point of the dual challenge isn't that you can look on page 27 of the book and there's some magic wand that we wave and say, here's how you solve it. The point of the dual challenge is to say that any viable sustainable path for the energy system needs to deal with both aspects of the dual challenge. The importance of less carbon is real and urgent, and I'll come on to talk about that, but we also can't lose sight of the fact that the world would need more energy if it's to continue to grow and prosper. Remember, 80% of the world's population living in that low energy region at the moment. Okay, the second question is, what do and don't we know about oil demand? So oh, we, we, there's lots and lots of things we know we don't know about oil demand. When will, oil, but when, when will we see um, peak oil demand? What impact will um, uh, electric cars have um, on, on oil demand? A, and so on. So lots of questions we don't know about oil demand. But I, but I also think there are some uh, questions, that, there are some things that I think we do know uh, about the future of oil, oil demand. To help sort of anchor that conversation, this first chart just shows you the pattern of oil demand in the evolving transition scenario. The left-hand side is the level of oil demand, where the level of oil demand and, and other liquids increases from about 98, by 98 million barrels a day uh, today to about 108 by 2040. The chart on the right shows you those sort of the increments in that, in that growth. As you can see, much of the growth happens in the first 10 years and it starts to plateau out. Some of the growth comes from increases, increased use within the transportation sector, shown by that, those blue bars. But those blue bars get gradually smaller over time as vehicle efficiency improves and the, most, the single biggest and most persistent source of demand growth is the use of um, oil um, uh, in, in the non-combusted use of oil or the use of oil as a feedstock in the petrochemical sector particularly in the production of plastics and that is a very significant growth going forward. So what does that profile look like? So that profile for oil demand um, in the evolving transition scenario looks like this green line here. So gradually increasing a little bit and then broadly plateauing out. But that will be wrong, okay? That clearly won't be right. The probability of that being right um, is infinitesimally small. It is is, uh, approaching zero. So how wrong could we be? What, What could happen? Well, one scenario is um, energy, oil demand could be a lot, uh, a, lot more, uh, a lot bigger, uh, a lot stronger. This is the implied path for oil demand from that more energy scenario I just ex- uh, talked about. So if we're not willing, if we don't think it's acceptable for two-thirds of the world's population to be in that low-energy region by 2040, I and mean, we wanted one-third, you get a profile for oil demand similar to this. Another possible scenario is one that we consider in the outlook called our greater reform scenario, The underlying story for this scenario is the increasing abundance of oil in the world And the growing risk that that some of that oil will never be extracted leads to greater competition as the major oil producers of the world compete to make sure that their oil is produced and and consumed rather than somebody else's. And that greater competition leads to lower prices and therefore helps to boost demand. And so you get a slightly stronger demand profile where demand continues to grow um, beyond um, uh, 2040. Another scenario we look at is the the importance of plastics. So, as I said, a significant growth of uh, growth in oil demand um, is coming from the production of plastics. Now, some plastics um, are absolutely fine and and aren't the source of environmental concerns. This keyboard is made of plastic. This microphone is made of plastic. The chairs you're sitting on is made of plastic. Much of the clothes some of us are wearing are made of plastics. that's not what the environmental concerns are about. The environmental concerns are about single-use plastics, like plastic bottles, straws, plastic bags. That accounts for around one-third of um, total plastics. It accounts for around 2.5 billion... um, three and a half uh, million barrels of oil today. And in the evolving transition scenario, the amount of oil producing uh, single-use plastics goes to about six million barrels a day. As a sort of extreme scenario, we say, what well, if the world uh, moves against uh, single-use plastics so there's a worldwide ban? on the whole use of single-use plastics by 2040. Now, that's a fairly, obviously a fairly extreme scenario, but remember, I'm trying to understand the range of uncertainty you'll find. And in that scenario, you'll get that yellow line where the growth of oil demand um, grows by four or five million barrels a day rather than 10 million barrels um, a day. Another possible risk to oil demand is this in, in, the increase of these trade disputes leads to um, affects the growth for oil. And I'm going to come back and tell you that story uh, and in a little bit more detail in a moment. And the final scenario um, we look at is what we call our rapid transition scenario. This is a scenario consistent with meeting the Paris climate goals, where you see oil demand peaking uh, in the next five years and then falling off to around 80 million barrels a day. So a whole range of different scenarios um, for oil demand. So significant uncertainties about A, when oil demand will peak. In some scenarios, it's growing well into 2040. In other scenarios, it's peaking in the next five years or so. Significant uncertainty about the level of oil demand in 2040, ranging in the here from somewhere between 80 million barrels a day to 130 million barrels a day. I think I would discount that 130 million barrels as um, a a sort of significant number. My range of uncertainty, somewhere between 80 and 110 million barrels a day, I think is quite hard to have a strong sense about where in, in that range it will be. So significant levels of uncertainty, but also some things I think we do know if we look at a chart like this. First, under all of these scenarios, oil demand is still playing a very significant role in the global energy system in 2040. And secondly, to repeat a point I've made before, all of these scenarios imply you need significant levels of, of new investment in oil over the next 20 years. This chart, this line here is based on some work um, produced by the International Energy Agency, which we just um, uh, um, nakedly plagiarise here. They do some work which says, if Investment in oil is restricted to just managing existing fields, and there's no new investment, uh, no investment in new fields. That will lead to a, an average rate of decline of around four and a half percent a year. In our scenario, if we build in a four and a half percent decline rate, the level of oil supplies in 2040 would get to around 35 million barrels a day of oil. To just get oil supplies up from that 35 million barrels a day, just to the lowest number, that bottom of that range, 80 million barrels a day, requires many trillions of dollars of investment. So one thing we do know, we don't know when oil demand will peak, we don't know what the level of oil demand will be in 2040, but I think we do know under almost any scenario that I can think about, the world will need trillions of dollars of investment in oil over the next 20 years. And I sort of have this sort of issue about people's arithmetic or understanding of energy systems. I don't think many, everybody fully understands that almost under any scenario, we will need need to do that. And if we don't have that many trillions of dollars of investment, we won't stand a chance of delivering on that more energy component of the dual challenge. What so? What do and don't we know about oil demand? Third, what might happen if the trade disputes um, escalates? was clearly a topical um, uh, issue uh, here, particularly here in DC. To be clear, the aim of this scenario, is, or, the, or what this, the purpose of this work, was not to try to model the impact of any particular trade dispute. So this is not a comment on any particular trade dispute. But rather, I wanted to explore what the more general impact that a persistent or persisting and escalation in these trade disputes could have on the global energy system. And to do that, we assumed a persistent a sort of, if trade disputes did persist and escalate, they would have two impacts. First, we, we assumed that this, an increased um, or a reduction in openness and trade would lead to a slower, slower economic trend, economic growth, and this is a fairly standard mechanism in the economic literature. That in, in a world of less growth and less openness, economic. Um, developments, technological breakthroughs, productivity gains in one part of the world, transfer more slowly to other parts of the world because trade is a good way in which you have technology transfers, and as a result of which you have a small reduction in in global economic growth. A few tenths of slower growth uh, each year. So each year, trivially small, it compounds up uh, to a bigger number. The second point is that in a world where these trade disputes uh, persist and escalate, countries which import energy may be, more, may be more concerned about the energy security of importing that energy, and as a result of which, may attach a small risk premium associated with importing energy. And we, 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 calib- we, just, we, we calibrate a number of, of 10% for this risk premium. So the way to think about this, if you're a country today and you're importing oil, and suppose the oil price is $60, you'd be willing to pay up to $66 for domestically produced oil or an equivalent to that for the extra security that gives you relative to to importing that energy. Now that 10%, there's nothing deep or profound at that 10% number. There's a little bit of evidence in in, in the literature. So you can pick a bigger or smaller number. I I thought 10% was a relatively modest number in terms of picking up energy security concerns. What was striking is these two relatively modest uh, assumptions lead to quite a profound change in the global energy uh, system. Overall GDP growth by 2040 is around 6% lower due to that slower economic growth. And that lower level of GDP then translates into, slower, into lower energy demand of around 4%. Now, some of you at this point may go, well, 4%? Doesn't sound like a big number. 4% by 20, uh, of the energy system in 2040 is roughly equivalent to the entire energy consumption of India today. So it's like taking India's energy demand off the table. So I, so I think a fairly sort of chunky number. Secondly, this increasing concerns about imported energy, and, and as a result of which this increasing bias for domestically produced energy, means the energies which are affected here are concentrated within traded energies, particularly in oil and gas, oil in green, red in gas. So there's, a, there's an increasing home bias for domestic energy. This combination of lower energy demand overall, combined with an increasing preference for domestic energy, means some some of the major um, energy importers have a significantly smaller demand uh, for imported energy. So for example, here in China, the demand, the the China's uh, uh, level of um, oil and gas imports by 2040 is around 20% lower um, than, than it is uh, in the involving transition scenario as it substitutes away from oil and gas and instead um, it consumes more domestically produced renewables and more domestically produced coal. The corollary of this is that the, the exports of oil and gas by the major exporters are also significantly less. So, for example, the U.S., which, together with Russia, which are the largest oil and gas exporters, are, are significantly hit in this scenario. U.S. oil and gas exports by 2040 are around two-thirds lower uh, in this scenario than they are in the evolving transition scenario. So this emergence of the U.S. as a major exporter of oil and gas severely dampened in this scenario Because A, people consume less energy, and B, they consume less imported oil and gas and use more domestically produced energy. One fact I've always sort of, uh, from history, I've always been intrigued by is the share of oil in the global energy system. So the importance of oil in the global energy system peaked in 1973, the year of the oil embargo. And its share of the global energy system has fallen almost every year since then. The lesson from history is that concerns about energy security can have persistent scarring effects. And that sort of message also comes through here in terms of the less globalisation. If people start to worry about energy security, they will diversify away from those fuels and that can have very uh, pronounced um, impacts. Question four, just how quickly could renewables grow? As I said, in the evolving transition scenario, renewable energy is by far and away the fastest growing source of energy, shown here on the chart on the left, led by by strong growth in both um, uh, solar energy and also um, wind, accounting for half of the growth in primary energy, as I said, and around two thirds of the growth in global power generation. And that that growth in power generation means, in the evolving transition scenario, by 2040, renewables overtakes coal as a major source of global power um, generation. So I just wanted to put this sort of growth of of renewable energy into some sort of historical um, context. Now, some of you may have seen this chart before. If you haven't... Oh, I'm not going to do that one. If you haven't, um, this is a very... um, This is a very cool chart, but you just need to spend a minute to get your head around how the chart works. Once you get your head around how the chart works, then it's a cool chart. Okay, so this chart, the clock on this chart starts at the point where each one of these energies accounted for 1% of world energy. And then looks at how that share evolved over the next 50 years. So for oil the chart in green, the chart starts in 1877. That's when oil accounted for 1% of world's energy. And then it looks how that share grows from 1% upwards as it penetrates the energy system over the next 50 years. For nuclear energy, it started in 1974. That's not a coincidence. Remember, 1973, move away from oil, uh, nuclear energy starts to come through. We haven't quite got to the end for the 50 years uh, of nuclear energy. So that's how to think about how this chart works. The message from this chart is it takes many, many decades for new energies to penetrate the energy system, at least in history. So for oil, if I use 10% as just a rough marker, it took roughly 45 years for oil to go from 1 to 10% of world energy. Natural gas, shown in red here, didn't reach 10% after 50 years. Energy transitions take multiple decades. Why? A key factor governing this is the energy system is highly capital intensive. Cars will last for 10, 15 years, power stations for 20, 30, 40 years. Unless those assets are scrapped, they act as a natural break on the pace at which energies can penetrate the energy system. So what about renewables? So, the clock for renewables started sort of 12 years ago in 2006 or 13 years ago in 2006, shown by this orange line. So, so far, renewables has followed a path pretty similar uh, to, to nuclear energy. In the evolving transition scenario, you'll remember renewables got to 15% by 2040. Remember, I said just remember that 15% number. What does that look like relative to history? It suggests that um, renewables will penetrate the energy system more quickly than any fuel ever seen in history. So am I optimistic about renewables? Well, relative to history, yes. It's penetrating more quickly than any fuel ever seen in history. But remember that evolving transition scenario is not consistent with meeting the Paris climate goals. In the rapid transition scenario, which I'll come on to show you in a minute, carbon emissions, uh, the, the growth of renewables is literally off the charts. It's literally off the charts. I had to rescale the chart to actually show and fit this line um, on the charts. Now, how do I interpret this, this chart? It this is not a council of despair. As I'm going to come on to show you, the rapid transition scenario is feasible if the right policy measures are, are, are followed. So this is not a council of despair. I take two points from this chart. One if we're gonna get anywhere close to getting on a pathway consistent with meeting Paris, the speed of change and transition is unprecedented relative to anything we've seen in history. And that's an important message for a company like BP, is we need to make sure that our organizational structure, the way we position ourselves, the way we think about capital allocation can, can, can change and adapt at this speed to make sure that we can be successful in that type of transition. And the second point to take from this is, if we are going to achieve this, just sitting back and relying on technology to do this for us isn't going to be enough. There's lots of technological progress in in history. You will need a comprehensive set um, of policy measures, which takes me to my fifth and final question, which is, in terms of a transition to a low-carbon energy system, what more um, needs to be done? Now, just to set this up, the chart here on the left looks at carbon emissions in the evolving transition scenario. And in that evolving transition scenario, carbon emissions continue to edge up. So they grow by about 7 or 8% by 2040. Now, the good news is that pace of growth over the next 20 years is significantly shallower than the pace of growth over the last 20 years, just compare the gradients of the green and the blue lines. That's the good news. The bad news is to achieve the Paris Climate Goals, you, you don't need any carbon emissions to grow less quickly. You needed them to fall very substantially. In terms of just the sectors which are responsible for those carbon emissions, in 2040, the power sector um, accounts is, is the single largest source of carbon emissions, accounting for around 40% of those carbon emissions, with with tra- uh, with transport and, and industry the, the 25% each. So the power sector, the single largest source of carbon emissions in 2040, despite that unprecedented growth in in renewables. So despite renewables penetrating the energy system more quickly than any fuel ever seen in history, the power sector is still the single largest source of of carbon emissions. What we wanted to do with the rapid transition scenario is try to explore the types of policies we could do to achieve a, a quicker transition. Now, in the book... Um, There really is an exhaustive uh, discussion of the different policies um, which which underpin the rapid transition scenario. And the way we build it up is we think about each sort of sector in turn, the power sector, industry and buildings, and the transport sector, and and apply a set of policy measures in each one of those three, and then bring them together at the end in the rapid transition scenario. And they're discussed in more detail in the book. I'm not going to go through all of that today. Let me just give you sort of of a, a, sort of a couple of sort of highlights of that. One is, when we were applying these, uh, these policy measures, uh, we needed a wide range of policy measures. No, there was no single, um, uh, no single silver bullet. There's a comprehensive range of policy measures were needed. And what we tried to do, to the best we could, we tried to sort of make sure that the cost and, and implied effort of a policy measures in each sector was broadly similar. So we're trying to achieve the same sort of level of ambition or cost in all three of those sectors. Carbon prices play a key role in in, in the rapid transition scenario, rising to $200 a tonne um, in the OECD and $100 a tonne of carbon emissions in the non-OECD. And as a result of which, they play a very significant role of the decarbonisation of both the power sector and also um, in, in industry. But we raise those carbon prices only gradually over time because if you rise them very rapidly over time, that leads to, um, to a premature scrapping of, of productive assets, which is a costly thing for the, for the economy. And so as they're rising only gradually through time, there's also a role for targeted regulatory measures. And, and the sort of design of those targeted regulatory measures were, were designed to encourage or to affect incentives for forward investment without affecting the... the, um, the, the, the um, the, the, the usefulness of the, of the existing assets, so without affecting the incentive to use um, existing assets. And as I say, there's far more analysis um, in uh, the um, in, in the book. So if we go back to this chart here, what does that look? What does the rapid transition scenario look like? And um, this shown in this chart here, with carbon emissions falling by around 45% by 2040. That blue swathe there is a range of um, external projections or external forecasts which claim to be consistent with meeting uh, uh, Paris climate goals. It's by no means a comprehensive uh, uh, set of uh, of, of external projections. It's just a range. But one striking thing here is just how wide this range is. There's no single path um, to Paris. There are many different ways in which one can get to Paris. Our our rapid transition scenario is pretty much in the middle of that pack. So in that sense, I think you can see it consistent with meeting um, the Paris climate goals. So the question I had in my mind is also one way to think about this is how do I get off that green line onto the orange line? What's doing most work as I'm trying to get the energy system off that green line onto that orange line? And in terms of the sectors we were just looking at earlier, it's the power sector which is doing the most work. The power sector accounts for around two thirds of the movement off of the green line into the orange line. And it's not surprising that the power sector is playing that role. One, as I just told you, um, it's the single biggest uh, uh, source of carbon emissions from energy use. Secondly, the power sector is the one sector where fuels compete side by side, literally hour by hour. So small changes in relative prices can have big big impacts. That's where you get your biggest bang for your buck in terms of reducing carbon emissions over the next 20 uh, years. The, most of the, the, the rest of um, the reduction in carbon emissions comes from uh, industry and buildings, particularly the, use, uh, the increasing use of carbon capture, use and storage within industry, supported by and those carbon pricing. What's striking is despite a really significant number of measures applied to the transport sector, and you can look in the book, and I do think it's a significant measure, uh, set of measures on the transport sector, it accounts for less than 10% of the growth in carbon emissions. So another message from this analysis, in terms of the lowest hanging fruit, in terms of carbon emissions, um, uh, reducing carbon emissions over the next 20 years, much of that low hanging fruit lies outside of the transport sector. This is really odd. When you think about the amount of column inches, which are devoted to thinking about reducing carbon emissions in transport, the amount of policy initiatives which are focused on reducing carbon emissions in transport, where this analysis suggests the lowest hanging fruit, where should policies be most focused on? It's not in the transport sector. Start with the power sector. First power sector, second power sector, third um, power sector is what this um, this analysis um, is telling us. What does a global energy system look like in this world? Um, uh, In the rapid transition scenario, energy demand still increases. It increases by around 20% now rather than 30% because of the extra energy efficiency measures we brought in. So the world needs more energy to continue to grow and prosper, even in this rapid transition scenario. All of the growth in energy demand, more than all the growth in energy demand, is, 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 is accounted for by that growth in renewable energy. Remember, that renewable energy off the charts. And, and renewable energy um, in that scenario getting to around 30% of global energy by 2040. But as a matter of arithmetic, if, if, if renewable energy is counting for 30% of world energy by 2040, something has to count for the other 70%. And in this scenario, oil and gas accounting for almost half of the growth in, in energy and um, by 2040. So another message from, from this type of work is um, the world will need many energies for many years to come. When we're thinking about trying to achieve the Paris Climate Goals, as, as Bob Dudley, my CEO, my boss often says, it's not a race to renewables. It's a race to reduce carbon emissions. And, and in doing that, we will still need many energies to come. And if we don't have those many energies, we're not going to deliver on that more energy aspect. How long have I... Oh, should I stop? Can I do, can I do one more? Okay. I'm cool. Um, I, I don't normally have time to do this, but it's sort of interesting, especially for, for this crowd. So, so one final point. If we achieve that rapid transition to... Uh, 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 that rapid uh, transition scenario, that would be a good, good step on the road to Paris. But it would only be a halfway step on the road to Paris. We would reduce carbon emissions by 45 50%. If we're going to go to a net zero world, we need to reduce carbon emissions by another 45 or 50%. So, this chart here shows the level of carbon emissions in 2040 in the rapid transition scenario. So, these are the ones that left. So, um, carbon emissions today, um, roughly, roughly about 36, uh, 37 um, uh, gigatons of CO2. We reduce that by half um, down to um, uh, sort of just over 16. These sectors are the hard-to-abate sectors of uh, um, uh, the hard-to-abate carbon emissions. Almost by definition, they're the uh, hard-to-abate carbon emissions. They were easy. We would have taken them out in the first 20 years. These are the ones which are still there. Concentrated in particular in transport and and also um, in buildings. And so what we start to do in the outlook is say, well, what what may we need to do in that second half of of the race? What, may, what sort of things will we need to see beyond 2040? The rapid transition sort of gives some sort of rough sense about what we may need to do for the next 20 years. What about the 20 year or 30 years after that? Um, and so I'm not going to go through this in detail, but just a few sort of pointers of what we will need. First of all, the most natural thing to do is completely decarbonise the power sector and electrify as much end-use uh, activities as we can. So to electrify, uh, to decarbonise a power sector, we need rapid growth in renewables we also need more gas and even potentially coal supported by carbon capture use and storage. And to support the use of renewables and to deal with the intermittency issues and emergence of energy storage and also demand side response. But some work by the International Energy Agency recently, some interesting work suggested only around two thirds of final end use of energy has the, has the properties that it can theoretically be um, or in principle be electrified. So, that suggests that electricity, decarbonized electricity on its own, won't be enough, because a third of energy uses can't be done by electricity. That suggests we will need other forms of low carbon uh, energy and low carbon energy carriers. So, a significant role, I think, for hydrogen, and also a significant role for bioenergy. And particularly, think about bioenergy how are we going to um, decarbonize aviation? we're going to decarbonize um, long-distance marine uh, transportation. And there, um, bioenergy is is likely to have to play a very significant role. A really important point, we will need to see huge gains in energy efficiency, and part of that is a massive expansion of the circular economy, reducing the demand uh, for, for new products and reusing products more significantly. And also... Um, the the significant emergence of of technologies for the storage and removal of carbon, Um, the role, again, of carbon capture use and storage, and also things like negative emissions technologies such as as land carbon. The road to Paris is going to be long and challenging. And again, the way we help think about this in, in terms of our strategy in BP this type of work, help which we do alongside our technology experts, help to think about how we want to position our strategy and which types of these technologies we wish to invest in over the next uh, tw- uh, over the next sort of decades to come. Let me stop uh, before I really do uh, try your patience. Um, the message from the energy outlook is there's an energy transition underway one aspect of that energy transition i think is very clear in, in our minds it's the me- it's a transition to a lower carbon energy system and the message from the energy outlook is we are not um doing we're not on a pathway consistent with achieving that and we need a decisive shift in policy to get onto a pathway anywhere close to being consistent with those goals but that's only one aspect of the energy transition there's also a transition in terms of energy demand as some of the world's poorest nations can um, start to grow and prosper, they can start to enjoy just a tiny fraction of the comforts that we take for granted. And so the challenge we all face working in this world is to solve that dual challenge, that need for more energy and less carbon. Thank you very much. All
0: right, thanks very much, Spencer. Um, I have like 13 questions, but we have a huge audience that probably wants to ask them too, so I'm gonna limit myself to three, and then we'll open it up to everybody uh, who will have nicely formulated short questions so we can get as many of them in as possible. Um, I wanna start where you stopped, which is about the nature of the transition, and I would say a recurring theme, not only in your outlook, but in lots of other outlooks, is there's a path to get to a two-degree scenario or a Paris-compliant scenario, but we're not on it, right? But what I continually find is that there is, those paths that we show are sort of the techno-economically optimal ways of getting there, right? <coughs> In your conversations around the world about this and the, the policies that you're observing and the investments you're observing people making, are people even doing the stuff that that your outlet would suggest is the techno-economically optimal stuff for them to do? So for example, um, there's a lot of focus on electric vehicles, right? Your suggestion, both this time and and last one, is that's probably not going to be a the largest near-term increment to getting to emissions reductions, but people are doing that anyway. So, so how can you just talk a Why? little bit about how the, the the facts on the ground right now match what you're you're sort of seeing over this longer term?
1: Yes, and I think that. Uh, when thinking about environmental policy, there's sort of two types of po- there's two issues here. One is local air quality, and the other one is climate change. Sometimes those policies go together, but sometimes they don't go together. And one example where they don't go together for example is the movement against diesel cars in, in Europe. Um, diesel cars are great in terms of climate change because they're very efficient. They're far more efficient than, than gasoline-based cars, but they're really bad for air quality. Another example is the increasing use of clean coal technology in some Asian economies. Now, some of you at this point m- m- may raise your eyebrows and say, clean coal, that seems to be like an oxymoron. But it, clean coal, if you scrub that coal and use it in efficient um, boilers, means you can produce power or, or heat and, and, um, uh, and heat and light. Um, which does not create local air quality issues, but still creates, creates consign, significant um, climate issues. If I was a politician and I had to pick what I would focus on, I would really focus on local air quality. That's great because the benefits of that accrue to the people who vote for me over the next couple of years. Climate's terrible if you're a politician because the benefits of that accrues to somebody in a completely other part of the world in 20 years time. That's, they're, never, they're not going to vote for me. So this is not, and, and be clear, this is not being critical of politicians. This is just life. Um, and so this is a challenge. And so I, I do worry the amount of effort on... So electric cars, I think, are incredibly important. In ter- I think electric cars will grow very, very rapidly, go from a, a few million today to hundreds and hundreds of millions by 2040. I think they will be hugely important in terms of the impact that will have on the transportation sector. I think they will have significant impact in terms of um, local air quality. And I don't think they will move the dial in terms of carbon emissions. And I think as long as a politician is honest and says that, that's fine. What I worry about is people driving their car and think they're doing enormous good in terms of climate. And the the arithmetic just doesn't um, support that. Um, I think our politicians doing... uh, Perhaps a country where... You see very significant improvements going where they are following a broad path here and the motivations may be different but china is if you like the one country where as i travel to seems to be making the most pronounced changes they are driving renewable energy or driving a shift away from coal very substantially one growth of that is huge rapid growth in renewable energy and also huge rapid growth in, in nuclear as well as natural gas so they are doing that issue another issue they're doing is driving very aggressively improvements in energy efficiency now i think if we when you speak to some of the policymakers there some of that drive for energy efficiency can well be motivated by energy security issues rather than by climate issues but in some sense it's pushing in the right direction so i think china would be the country i'd say it sort of appears in a sort of concrete sense to be doing most of those actions at the moment but it starts in a world where Almost two-thirds of its fuel mix is coal, so it's got a long way to travel.
0: So one very small follow-up on this, because I think it it is a pronounced difference between some of the conversations I hear in the environmental community versus in the energy community, particularly in the modeling community, is that the inevitability of the decarbonization of the electric power sector is underway. Do you see that? Do you accept that as a premise? Because I think that's one of the other reasons why you're seeing so much pressure on the transportation and the industrial side, is that...
1: It's inevitable this will happen
0: that the electric power sector, we've put the policies in place. We've sort of set that ship in motion. we got to get started on the other stuff.
1: The share of coal in the global global power sector in 2017 was 38%. Have a guess what the share of coal was 20 years earlier in 1998. 38%. Completely unchanged over the last 20 years. The share of non-fossil fuels in the global power sector in 2017 despite that massive growth in renewables, was lower than it was in 20 20 years earlier. Renewables grown very substantially, but more than offset by fall in nuclear. The sector we need to make most progress in, we made precisely none over the next 20 years. So no, I don't have that confidence we can sit back and just say we're on a path and the momentum to achieve that.
0: I want to talk about oil for a minute, because you didn't talk a huge amount about it here, and we're producing a lot of it here in the United States. Um, can you just talk uh, for a minute about whether or not or what you saw in this outlook about the 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 future of US oil production what does that matter uh, in your outlook does it you know sort of work itself out just could you speak for that moment Yes.
1: Yeah, so we see the the US accounting for around half of the growth of oil production over the next te- uh, over the next 20 years and essentially most of that growth coming through over the next 10 years so um so the U.S. being sort of the, the, the key source of demand growth over the next uh, 10 years. And that's a story on, on U.S. tight oil. So U.S. tight oil growing by five and a half, six million barrels a day in that evolving transition scenario, peaking in the, in the, in the late uh, 2020s and then gradually sort of fading off. Confidence bands around that. Uh, very significant. If I showed you my profiles for US tight oil over repeated energy outlooks, it would look like most others, up, up, revision, up, revision, up, revision, up, revision, up, revision, up. We keep on being surprised by the sort of uh, by the sort of resilience and strength of US tight oil but tight oil being the sort of key source of marginal supply over the next sort of 10 years and I think when people are trying to think about just what helps if I you know trying to predict oil prices one day one week in advance is just impossible to do if you're trying to think about what acts as a sort of natural anchor for a market over a sort of multiple years then most natural way of thinking about it is well what's the marginal source of supply over that period of time and my sense is um, um, you know, there will be shocks and distortions which will cause the thing to move all over the place. But over the next 10 years, a sort of natural anchor, I think, will be US tight oil. Great.
0: I'm going to ask you one more question and then open it up to the audience for questions. Um, you're kind of like an energy missionary, right? You travel all over the world talking about lots of wide-ranging energy issues. It's a really, you know, It's a really good opportunity to ask you, what are people preoccupied with in your outlook in other parts of the world? What do, what do we tend to care about here in the U.S. versus in Asia, versus in Europe, versus in other places?
1: Um, I think in, in Asia, uh, in terms of energy, uh, it tends, well, it varies a little bit. So part, part of the story is, uh, so if you go to China, I think it's, it's local air quality, it's security of supply, and it's, and it's carbon emissions. And I think that local air quality and security supply really, really matter. Many uh, of the governors of the different provinces in China have a public key performance indicator for the next five years of how many, the percentage of clean days they have over their five year reign. Whether it's a clean day or not is transparent every single day. There's an official index of the air quality index. So each day you can score that governor. That governor knows he's not going to, he or she will not be re-elected at the end of that five years if he doesn't achieve that. That helps to sort of focus the mind a little bit. I try and do that with my forecast team a little bit. It doesn't always work. Um, so, so that's an issue. If you go to some other Asian economies, it's providing um, rapid growth of affordable power. You know, India has huge numbers of people that don't have access uh, to power. They have people who are in, in, the, in the rural areas of India who are using biomass. So they are poisoning their families every single day because they don't have access to clean cooking facilities. In that story there, um, climate change is, feels a little bit of a luxury because I'm trying to actually just get access to clean, affordable energy. And so there, the real focus is, is what will get me clean, affordable energy. Um, And so the issues there are are quite different to some other um, parts of the world. Uh, China seeing nuclear as a major uh, part of of their decarbonisation. Europe um, moving away from nuclear very significantly. And I think perhaps in, in, in Europe, uh, one of the th- sort of most significant things I've seen, I think we've seen over the last six months or so is what's happening in Germany and, and this commitment to move away from coal over the next 20 years. And I think that's quite a significant movement in terms of, of, um, of Europe.
0: Great, okay. We'll uh, invite our colleagues now to ask some questions. If you can, wait for the mic question in the form of a question and state your name and affiliation. We'll start with Sain in the back and move our way forward. And maybe we'll take a couple of yes, yes, and I'll try and okay. be
2: quick in my... Sorry. Ah. Thane Gustafson, Georgetown. Quick question for both Spencer and Sarah. Uh, will this terrific talk be available as a video, either on CSIS website or BP website? Yes. Great, thank you.
0: OK. We can take more now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll go to the gentleman in the red tie here. I'm going to come to the center. Great.
2: Right? Yep. there you go. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the presentation, Ricardo Reineri. Uh, former president of the International Association for Energy Economics.
0: I'm always uh, surprised with PP uh, Energy Outlook, as well as uh, the International Energy Agency Energy Outlook uh, regarding the big uh, role that you give to energy efficiency. So
2: if you can comment a little bit on that in terms of your energy projections, uh, because
0: energy, Projections growth is much lower because you put
1: a lot of weight on energy efficiency. So, how you model that? Hmm? Okay. Yeah. And we'll go right here. You can use the hand up. Oh, thanks. Uh, sorry. Nope. The, I'm later here.
2: Thank you very much. My name is Dora Zombri. I'm with the Embassy of Hungary. And I have a question. So, here in Washington, D.C., beyond the trade disputes, we have also like sanctions dominating the discussion. And I would like to uh, know like what's your opinion or what the impact of sanctions, like specifically against Iran, Russia, Venezuela, and because they are all targeting the energy sectors.
0: So what is the impact of these sanctions on your outlook? Thank you.
1: Yes, yes, no, we can do that.
0: Okay, did you have one right there, Nicole?
1: I like taking three taking or four, because that right way, yeah, that's good, time. because that way there's one of them is really difficult. I can forget okay. to answer it. That's why I always like
0: yeah. I up once I've called on you so they Hi.
2: can Hi. Uh, Chris Knight with Argus Media. Um, do you see any in, uh, effect from the IMO 2020 rules and near-term disruptions, and
1: relatedly, um, any effects on LNG getting into the shipping sector more?
0: Okay. And if you're fast, we can take another
1: round. Okay. Um, energy efficiency, I... Um, When when somebody says they're surprised, I'm always starting to think, oh, my God, uh, what mistake have we made? And then when you talk about energy efficiency, I genuinely didn't know if you were going to say you're too conservative, or you're too optimistic. And there is as many people, McKinsey just produced a report which um, has energy demand plateauing very quickly because they're really... Uh, optimistic about energy efficiency. Energy efficiency here is growing almost two percent a year. Uh, There's gains in energy efficiency on average across the world about almost two percent a year. On average over the past there's like a 1.3, 1.4 number over the last 20 years. So I've got a sort of uh, sort of a third increase in terms of of, of gains in energy efficiency. I, I think that is motivated by just if as we Uh, the, The underlying, some underlying assumption here is, although the world doesn't do enough to do Paris, it is doing something to do Paris. One way of achieving Paris is producing lots and lots of clean energy. Another way, which is perhaps even easier, is just use less energy right? So that's just a really efficient way of solving this problem is just being efficient in terms of energy. And I think there's just a strong incentive to do so. And as I said, I think that's true in in some countries. In other countries, I mean, a really big push in China in recent years has been improvements in energy efficiency. And I think that's to do with energy security issues. So it it may be, um, I I think, I I guess my big point here is energy efficiency really matters. why Why I put that simple chart up? Because I don't think people talk about it enough. And sort of small tweaks in that energy efficiency can have a big impact. And um, I, I genuinely didn't, I, I think I'm, I'm certain I'm wrong on energy efficiency, but I'm not quite sure at the moment if I, which side of, um, of I'm gonna be wrong on. Um, we don't, I, I'm always very um, strict or, or fussed about we should only use the energy outlook to comment on things we think we can comment on and not comment on. When we talked about the trade disputes in the energy outlook, we explicitly said we're not going to try and model any particular dispute. We want to think of these generic ones having these two properties. Um, those sanctions, I think, um, relate to some of the concerns that countries around the world may fear about energy security. But, I don't, but, I, but, but that's as far as my analysis goes. I, don't, I have not sort of thought about those things um, in, in detail. In terms of the the IMO, obviously, the outlook here doesn't think about the the IMO. It's all things about the the broad um, trend. Um, I think my own personal – so, for those who aren't familiar with this issue, this is the new rules that will come in effect uh, next year, which uh, um, mandate that – Uh, shipping vessels use uh, lower sulfur uh, fuel and then move away from high sulfur fuels. The issue, concern that was raised is this will lead to a sort of blowing out of differentials of middle distillates as demand goes up and the demand for um, high sulfur fuels declines. And some people suggest the effects could be very, very pronounced, both on differentials and even potentially oil prices. Um, I think the truthful answer is we sort of don't know my view based largely on the on people who understand refining far better than I do. So I, I, go, I know I don't understand refining, so I go and speak to people who do. Their view tends to be that the flexibility within the refining system should act to dampen those effects. And so our, our view is, you know, the qualitatively, the, the sort of effects people talk about will be there, but our view is sort of, sort of somewhat towards the, the end of the more sanguine end because we place greater weight on, on the scope for refineries um, to, to adjust. Great, let's take
0: another round
2: Uh, We'll go right here, and then uh, Charlie and Bill. Uh, Thank you. Um, I'm Karen St. John, retired from BP. Um, My question is um, your views in terms of being able to get on that two-degree path or lower while keeping energy affordable. I mean, you could get CO2 emissions down pretty rapidly by pricing carbon high enough, impacting energy demand and GDP. So, your views on that.
0: Okay, and
2: then we'll go to Bill and Charlie. Charlie Ebinger with the Atlantic Council. And any of your background, as you do your scenarios, Do you look at any catastrophic events that might change the idea people have whether we can continue to use oil, gas, and coal? I'm thinking, for example, if the Greenland ice shelf all of a sudden went into the North Atlantic and disrupted the Gulf Stream or the Antarctic. I mean, how do you – it seems like all the scenarios project kind of a straight line, different straight lines, but straight lines. What about the catastrophic event that will say we can't use this stuff anymore? Yeah, Bill Iqor, uh, consultant. Um, question: of, You spoke about electric vehicles, and you spoke about the sort of the the, the impact or lack of, or impact on diesel reduction in Europe. But um, could you also kind of give your perspective on fuel efficiency s- you know, standards? And uh, there's, of course, as you know, a debate here in the United States about what to do with the uh, the uh, mid 20s uh, standards. So, cars and trucks and their efficiency.
1: Uh, y- yes, um, I-, I think, so can, can we achieve that, that transition while still providing affordable energy? I, th- I think my answer is, is yes. I'm, I'm sort of optimistic. I'm a naturally half-full type guy. I think partly that because renewable energy is playing a big role here and the cost of those renewable energies going down. I think my biggest concern is if people think, actually, I'm going to, we shouldn't carry on investing in um, oil and, and um, gas, and we should put all our energies into to, uh, renewable energy. I, I think that would be a major problem. Um, that off the charts uh, growth in renewable energy meant it's providing 30% of the energy the world needs in 2040. If we didn't have energy, significant investment in oil and gas, then the prices of those oil and gas would be going up very substantially. That would stunt economic growth. Remember, where is that economic, global economic growth coming from over the next 20 years? In this scenario, about 80, 80% of that is coming from the developing world. So they're the countries that are going to be, and they're the ones that need more energy, and they're the ones who, whose growth um, is, will, will be stunted. So that, I think, is a big issue on that one. No, we don't um, forecast of events and it's sort of, you know, how do you forecast a black swan? And I think in some sense, um, forecasts or forecasts or all outlooks um, um, are always um, far more, uh, have a far far greater, far less variance than reality. So reality comes along and surprises you all over the place. The point here is what we're trying to do here is aid our thinking trying to explore uncertainties and so trying to so it's, uh, it, the role of catastrophic events is sort of it's quite hard i think perhaps thinking about it perhaps in wave, another way which is sort of where you were getting at which i think is an interesting experiment we haven't done it but an interesting experiment is do it the other way what would i have to believe for this to come for this to happen so rather than saying i'm going to believe this event which is like well where did you get that why that one and not this one because they're all sort of just extreme Perhaps another way would be, what would we need to believe, so to take that 35 million barrels of oil, what would I need to believe that demand for oil in 2040 really could fall as much as 35 million barrels a day? Now, I haven't done that thought experiment, and that would maybe be an interesting, a slightly different, but it would, it would require you to think of some, clearly some extreme events and very strong tail risks, and that may be, I find that more appealing because in some sense, then it's, it's less arbitrary which of those sort of catastrophic events, and I haven't done that, it would be interesting. Um, uh, Bill's question about fuel efficiency standards. So uh, in this, uh, in evolving transition scenario, um, the number of passenger car passenger kilometers, um, um, driven over the next 20 years, almost doubles. The amount of oil consumed by cars, um, is essentially unchanged over 20 years. Um, Uh, an order of magnitude more important. So there's some growth in electric cars from three or four million to 300 million. That reduces oil demand relative to a counterfactual by two or three million barrels a day. Vehicle efficiency standards are an order of magnitude more important. It's like reduces oil demand by about 20 million barrels a day. So vehicle efficiency standards is enormously important. Um, In the evolving transition scenario, we had to make an assumption about what happened to the CAFE standards in the early 2020s, and that's, you know, who knows. In in terms of sort of transparency, we assumed they are held constant, so in terms of the current administration's preferred uh, path, and then they gradually get back to the same level they would have done, so a slightly steeper gradient by sort of 2040. What is interesting is that slower, so that sort of higher path for efficiency, or lower path for efficiency. When really you think about it for a period of time, um, one of the a is all demand in uh, America is higher as a result. Also, the um, the growth of electric cars is slower as a result. As as I, some of you may have heard me bore you last year. I think the biggest driver of the growth of, of, of electric cars. Uh, is vehicle efficiency standards, because it's the way you can achieve your efficiency standard. So those efficiency standards are technology neutral. But if they're tight enough, it sort of almost necessitates the growing use of electric cars. And if you relax that a little bit, then the growth of electric cars um, is is a little less.
0: I'm going to do one more round of questions. I just want to push on one thing very quickly. Um, I do think it's really hard to model black swan events and big discontinuities. It's getting increasingly easy to model climate impacts. Yes. Uh, I, and I think, I think it's going to be really hard to continue to do climate scenarios without having the cost on the impact side of it.
1: Anyway. That, I, I uh, Guilty as charged. Absolutely. So, um, so what one needs, especially in a scenario like the evolving transition scenario, if you take it out, If we're still on that path by 2040, 2050, then extreme events uh, are likely to get larger. They will then feed back onto GDP growth. And so we should have a a week of GDP growth. And and I 100% agree with that. Um, I'm really keen... For people to do who are able to do that modeling and i 'm going to copy it as soon as they do it I and um, so m- at the moment I just don't think I'm smart enough and my team of seven or eight people trying to do this in a few months are smart enough to have a go at that and I don't want to pretend I can do things I can't um, but i I agree and I think there will you know there's there's far better uh, bodies around the world uh, who can do that work and and I'd be more than happy to then build that in but I think it's absolutely right we don't have that feedback and that's a uh, absolutely guilty as charged. Right, well,
0: hopefully you'll get some phone calls. Uh, okay, so we'll do. We're going to do the side one, two, and then uh, right there three.
2: Thank you. Hi, Nicole Pinko, Union of Concerned Scientists. I have a question regarding carbon capture and storage. Can you comment on BP's role in developing and implementing this technology, particularly outside
0: of enhanced oil recovery? Okay, great. Thank you.
2: Adam Siegel, ITA, thank you for, yet again, a provoking uh, set of things with lots of uh, ideas. Thinking about the 1% slide, which is almost, perhaps, worth pulling up, the renewables you have, geothermal and biofuels, along with wind and, but the geothermal, it was quite established, it's really not changing much. The Biofuels were already quite established. If I take them out, that 1% is in 2006, looks to be about 2011, 2012. Mm if I'm just wind and solar, and then the growth curve skyrockets it above the nuclear. Mm -hmm. How might that affect your thinking about the potential growth if you took away a quite established part of the power of of the renewables and looked only at that that growth rate?
0: Thanks, Adam. Nicole, we're going to do Sam Gross. Sam, can you take the mic? And then the gentleman right in front of her. Sure. My
2: question am Samantha Gross. I'm with the Brookings Institution. Um, my question is kind of a difficult one, but I think it's something that it may be important to many people in this room. And that is, we're talking a lot about energy pathways and the kind of energy pathways we need to be on to achieve Paris or even to just achieve a flattening of carbon. But what I think a lot of people here in Washington are thinking about is policy pathways. And what we see happening right now is a total lack of policy pathways. We see a really strong divide between the right and the left. And even the people who are most concerned about climate change saying crazy things like we shouldn't put another dime into fossil fuel exploration or infrastructure. How do we translate and how do we think here in Washington about translating your energy pathways into policy
0: pathways that people like me can push for? That's kind of what we do here in Washington. Yeah, thanks, Samantha. And then we'll take one last one.
2: Thank you. My name is Paul from Johns Hopkins. Um, I'm looking at your uh, involving transition scenario where coal seems to be very important still in power sector, even though renewable increasing, can they contribute to the carbon emission. I'm just curious, like looking at a lot of O E C D country developed economies retiring coal power plants, even China, Korea shifting away. Where are these coal power plants coming from? Like mostly developed countries, or uh, from country without policy support? even World Bank kind of like start investing
1: coal power plants seems sound like I'm going to stop there okay <laughs> um, CCUS um, we outside of enhanced oil recovery um, we have had some existing projects so we have a project uh, in, in Algiers uh, which uh, worked for some time and I think it's I, should, I will check with somebody in the front row here who understands it. I think it's been, it is, it's been gradually phased out now, but we have a project. Um, BP is... So we have an existing project which would work for 10, 15, 20 years. And so, yes, it works. Uh, and it's there. Um, BP is one of the founding members of something called the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, the OGCI. They have announced uh, their commitment to undertake uh, more CCUS projects, and they project based uh, in, in the UK is actively being discussed um, at, at the moment. So uh, yes, it's there. And I guess from, a, from an economic perspective, um, CCUS has a public good element to it, okay, because it, it so helps to solve the externality. We know from Economics 101 that unless you price that externality, you will have underinvestment in that public good. The private sector doesn't provide street lamps, okay. Now, the world has been very good at recognising the externality associated with renewables and supporting renewables. It has not been very good at recognising the externality associated with CCUS and encouraging investment in CCUS, as a result of which we're getting under investment in CCUS. And it feels odd to me why, why, why one technology is recognised the externality that is recognised, but not the other one. And so it's there, it exists, we know it, it will work. But at the moment, we are not providing, we're not pricing that externality, and as a result of which, we're getting underinvestment in it. And that's sort of, it's pretty much economics 101. It seems odd that we're not doing it. Um, Adam, um, when somebody says surprising, you worry. If somebody says provoking, you worry even more. Um, I, it's a good question, I don't know. I think my chart, I mean, so your argument could be, why aren't you even more optimistic on, on, on renewables, uh, Spencer? I. You, it sounds like you've done that, that maths and I haven't done the maths. I, I, I thought my chart was pretty robust. I thought I'd looked... Because biofuels and, uh, and um, geothermal energy is pretty small, but you've done the... You, you've, it sounds like you've done the sums and I haven't. So let me go away. It's a fair push, an absolutely fair push. Um, Sam, you asked about policy pathways. So in the book... So clearly the rapid transition scenario is... Um, highly stylized okay so um we're not i'm not it does have a set of policies but they are they are stylized policies i think it has two or three components to it at a global level okay so the u.s is different to and so it's not typically so what message would i give to you in a global perspective i think it would be two or three one is um focus on the areas where the hanging fruit is lowest uh and I, for me, I would start with power, one first, power second, and then perhaps look at industry and buildings. Secondly, get a carbon price and, 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 and start raising that. But, you, but there's a commitment. You can only raise it slowly. Otherwise, you're going to scrap things. So the, the impact that's going to do is, is hard in the near term. And then third, I think it's think about regulations which are designed to affect future investment without affecting the economics of of existing uh, stocks. And that will mean you'll have to, you know, the nature of regulation means you're going to have to hold your nose and pick some winners and losers. That's just life. okay? But if we don't do that, we're not going to achieve very much in the next 20 years. So um, so relating back to carbon capture, use and storage. One way I can motivate carbon capture, use and storage is having a carbon price. But if I'm going to have to wait 15 or 20 years until I get that carbon price, why don't I just incentivize CCUS? Why don't I have auctions for power CCUS just like I have auctions for just renewable energy as a way of trying to provide that? So I think there are some – that's a very high-level thing. But I think then you, you know that's sort of as far as we got in terms of um, – uh, but at least it fills. I give you some elements of sort of I, I, my objective when I was thinking about the rapid transition was I wanted to get to a point that we could at least say a little bit more about what our judgment was rather than saying carbon pricing can stop and, and just sort of sitting back, which I didn't think was a very helpful position we were in. Um, in terms of um, coal, where is this growth in coal coming from? Um, it's very largely uh, in Asia, developing Asia outside of um, uh, outside of china so it's india it's by far and away the biggest source of dem- growth for, for coal and then other de- developing asia uh, other parts so think indonesia and so on we have some analysis in the book which shows the vast majority of that increase in coal consumption is feeding into the power sector because we can sort of trace it through in our, our model so when i stand up in some parts of the world typically you know some parts of europe and say and coal consumption in india and southeast asia is increasing some people tut and go and you think, well, hold on, this is providing power in some of the poorest countries in the world where people at the moment are killing their families every day using biomass for, um, uh, 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 to, uh, to, for cooking. This is countries where levels of income per head are sort of 10%, 15% of those in, in the US. They're growing renewables very substantially in India, but power demand's increasing even more so. So you need another fuel. The cost of of natural gas, particularly imported natural gas, is significantly higher than coal. If 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 your incomes were ten or fifteen percent of what they are, uh, or only ten or fifteen percent of what they are, would you recommend that you use um, an expensive natural gas when they're consuming? Remember, they're consuming roughly one tenth of the energy that an average American citizen is is consuming. So I I think it, 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 that need for affordable. Uh, uh, um, secure, affordable energy feels a pretty natural thing to me in terms of, of that coal demand in, in some of those um, fast growing, but still relatively poor economies.
0: Okay. We have uh, hit our allotted amount of time. I want to say thank you to Spencer for coming, but I I want to really emphasize. I. Spencer means it when he wants feedback, so uh, to the extent that you've got thoughts about the outlook, I know you will always welcome that, uh, and uh, and hopefully we'll have you back here again to do it again next year, but please join me in thanking Spencer for
1: taking